Hello to our lovely audience and thank you for coming today. And hello and welcome to Business Bites. The University of Birmingham in Dubai's latest initiative to support businesses during the current COVID pandemic pandemic COVID-19 and over the coming months we will be delivering a series of short bite-sized webinars where we invite expert business leaders and academics from the University of Birmingham to discuss the current challenges that businesses in different industry sectors are facing during these unprecedented times and the economic impact that it also brings. We'll also be discussing the lessons learned along the way. Now the series will cover many industry sectors, so you will see many other events advertised on our website over the next few months. And those industry sectors will include business, which we're covering here today, education, construction, law, sustainability, health and well-being, with many more to come. Now today's discussion, we're actually going to be centering it around the COVID-19 pandemic and precarious economies risk and value in existing business models and the change required for recovery. My name's Lynn Saint and I'm the Business Development Manager here at the University of Birmingham's Dubai campus, where I engage with businesses and individuals to provide professional development and learning programs for organizations and working professionals. And in the spotlight today, I'm really, really glad to see uh, we have two special guest speakers joining us. And I'm delighted to welcome our first guest, who is Sarah Bartlett, who is the director at the lead in strategic communications advisory firm, Kext CNC. And Sarah is based here in the UAE. And as you can see from the screen, this is the real Sarah, not um, a camera with a big strike through, through um, the image. Welcome, Sarah. I hope you can hear us. Good afternoon, everybody. Excellent. You're here. Thank you so much. I'm also delighted to welcome Professor John Bryson and John is the Professor of Enterprise and Economic Geography here at the University of Birmingham and John is joining us from the UK today. Hi John. Yeah, good morning and good afternoon. <laughs> Different time zones, yes. <laughs> other people in India as well. So let's get started. So we'll start with you John, very first question. As an, academic, as an academic working in the field of strategy and international business with a focus on economic geography, in the light of COVID-19, what are the main issues or concerns for industry that you can share with us today? Right, okay, so COVID-19 is, is interesting and it's interesting in a, in a variety of different ways. So the first thing I should say is we should remember the, the Nobel Prize winner, Neil Bohr, uh, used to say that prediction is really very difficult, especially if you're trying to predict the future. So the first thing you should know is that the future is always going to get you in some ways in an unexpected way. But the key thing is that as a business, as, as, a, as a researcher and student, as well as board member of business, the first thing we should try and do is, is there are things that are unpredictable, but they should not be unexpected. Now, the problem with COVID-19 is too many businesses have been caught out because they are engaging in inappropriate or limited or no risk management strategies within their business activities. So they should have had an effective risk matrix within their business. They should have been thinking about a whole series of unimaginable events that might happen. So I can remember in December, I was having a, a lunch with uh, members of my family who I hadn't met for an awful long time. And in that lunch, we were predicting a mega pandemic that would 
produce major global crises. So if we could do that during that lunch, why weren't business leaders doing this um, last year, a year before last? Now, we must remember that in 2003, we had the pre-COVID-19 event. So in 2003, we had SARS, SARS beginning in China, then heading to Hong Kong, and then producing a, an interesting localized pandemic that switched off part of the Asian world. Lots of businesses impacted. The learning from SARS for businesses, for governments, uh, for politicians, absolutely nothing. No one learned from SARS. Mm. So the question is, why didn't we learn from SARS? Well, the answer is, brings me back to my PhD. So my PhD was about understanding why within commercial property markets you have periods of major crisis and major slump. And during my first job interview, uh, a physicist said to me, well, does that mean within your research you can produce a model that will predict downturns in property markets and you can then work with investors and developers to avoid those downturns? And my response to that physicist was, I can't do that. And the reason why I can't do that is that the individuals within the property industry change. So those who were badly burnt during crisis number one, by the time you get to crisis number two, they've retired, they've forgotten, they're no longer able to read the industry as the industry is moving into a downturn. So there's something here within with COVID-19, which is about understanding economic change and making sure that if you're sitting on a board or you're a senior manager within a company, you try and manage out surprise. So I sit on three boards at the moment, and as a board member, I don't want to be surprised. I don't want the executives to surprise me. I don't want my fellow board members to surprise me. And working as an effective member of a board is about managing out surprise, thinking about what's going to happen this year, next year, in five years' time, in 10 years' time. Now, the problem is, I think there are two problems here. One is within companies, there's a concern with optimization. So we need cost control. We need to minimize the amount we're spending to maximize our revenue. Now, if your business is run on a very effective optimal optimization strategy, during times of COVID-19, you're in deep trouble because you've got no organizational slack, you've got no flexibility, or a word I hate, you've got no agility. You've got no mm. ability or the, the latest fashionable word, you have limited ability to pivot because you have no additional spare, cap spare, spare capacity. The second thing we, we have is for the majority of businesses, they are distracted by the immediate problem. So we have this immediate local crisis in that we're unable to deliver an order to the quality uh, or to the time we committed the business to. So we mm. get completely distracted by the everyday micro activities within the business. And we don't have time to sit back and say, well, what about the big problem, the big challenge that's around the corner? How are we going to manage our resources and invest to minimize the impacts of uh, climate change, to minimize the impacts of, for example, uh, the complete removal of the oil economy and its replacement with um, an alternative economy in which oil has a really minor, minor role. So for countries and companies in the Gulf, that's a major issue, nothing to do with COVID-19, but COVID-19 will intensify that shift away from the economy as we knew it to the economy as we are we are getting getting to it so for COVID-19 I would suggest for all businesses this is the moment for a stock take ask yourself what you are doing well what you're doing badly what you need to do better and remember expect COVID-21 COVID-25 
COVID-32, COVID-42, because we're going to get more pandemics. And the reason why we can expect more pandemics is twofold. One is greater internationalization means we have more flows and connections between people. That explains why we're currently in our current situation. And the second thing we have, and Dubai is a very good example of this, is greater density within our urban environments. More people living together in smaller spaces. Greater density means ease of transmission of a virus is much easier and will be much more deadly. So as soon as we, as we're becoming more international and as our urban densities are increasing, we're getting exposed to more biological hazards. So expect things are going to happen. This is going to be our new future. If your companies are not organized to manage for this, you're the companies that A, I don't want to work for, I'm looking for a job. And B, if you are working for one of those companies, I would suggest you might want to be thinking about alternative employment. So be prepared is the message. Be so prepared. Business leader, would you like to come in there? Yes, well, definitely. I think, I mean, I couldn't agree with you to begin with. Um, I, I agree 100% with what you said. And sitting, sitting here in the Gulf, which has been my very happy home for most of my adult life, uh, I can only really talk about and, and, and think through the prism of, of local and regional views on this. And I think, to me, the question is, what are the main issues or concerns for business and what do we anticipate that this will, the situation will do? And I, I think that the, the primary ramification of COVID is that it's knocked any complacency that business leaders might have had completely out of the park. One of the things that we do as a firm is help businesses to plan their reputational risks for the future. So what might happen to the firm and how would the firm react? And I've always been really surprised as somebody who started a career in, in, in Europe, how little time was given to planning locally amongst the private sector in, in the Gulf. There, there's been, you know, there's some lip service that gets paid. Um, usually somebody, for example, sitting connected to the legal department or there may, there may be a risk department who would look at what might happen to the firm. But I've never actually seen a company invest time in, in thinking about it, a much bigger, broader issue that would have an effect on everybody as opposed to a very kind of firm specific or industry specific issue. So the main one for me is complacency will have gone. I think the other thing that's very important here is confidence, because when your complacency is taken away, it really shakes your confidence. And of course, the economy, the state of the economy is, is largely linked to confidence. So I think, I think a main issue there but the, the follow-up issue really is that people are very unsure at the moment about what's going to happen and that has a not that has a not that has knock-on effects so one of the things that happens when people are unsure about their own sort of security for example and their livelihoods is they stop spending money so of course, and we've already seen that of course you know we've seen people pulling the reins on their spending and that of course has knock-on effects in a place like the uae where 80 percent of the population is expatriate, it's originally from outside the UAE. This situation is also unprecedented in the sense for people here that we are currently under, um, you know, there are, are one-way flights out if you want to go, but you can't get back in at the moment, although I think that will change soon. And people, I think, are taking a stock take as well of themselves individually. And when I say people, I'm talking about valued employees of whether they want to be closer to their families. If you've got 80% of the population thinking that, that, that's a possible brain drain. 
you know, coming on the horizon when life gets back to normal, the so-called new normal. So I think there's a number of issues that this situation's brought up. Of course, I mean, it's a myriad of issues. It's everything from security of supply chains through to communications with, with how you communicate with employees that you can't see face to face anymore. But for me, the big ones are the end of complacency and a real real shakiness and confidence and, and i think those will have long-term effects yeah great so going on from that you um, briefly mentioned about the disruption that covid19 has been causing in industry generally um, can you describe the um, disruption that is being caused um, in the sector and what do you think this would do for businesses generally longer term right, so which, which of us do you want to deal with that sarah maybe sarah yep well, I'll start. I mean, for, for me, the very obvious one, and John and I have talked about this, is, is homeworking. So, you've, you know, homeworking is not, is not a style of, of work that's traditionally been used widely in the Gulf before. And there are, there are very sort of strong cultural reasons for that. Um, a lot of it's about trust, a lot of it's to do with diversity of, of workforce, etc. I mean, remember, we've got more than 170 nationalities represented in the UAE. The workforces tend to be very diverse. And, and homeworking isn't always necessarily something that people can do. You know, it very much depends on their situations. So I think one of the very first, I think one of the big topics that's affecting everybody is how do you keep up productivity when your staff are at home, possibly dealing with children that they're having to homeschool, possibly dealing with mental health issues such as anxiety or, or, or depression. You know, how do you keep everybody bandied in together when they're not together? And I think that that is that's a very unifying concept across. And I was it was very interesting watching how this unfolded as as the virus situations unfolded. And definitely, governments seem to be onto this very fast. You know, you've got multinational companies who tend to be set up internationally for their staff to work remotely. Uh, the government was very quick to to sort of activate this, and there was a lot of private sector businesses that were much slower behind this, and are probably very uncomfortable with this as a concept but this is a concept that looks like it's going to be here to stay now that might be from a very practical perspective because of the second wave of the virus or it might be also that that attitudes have changed we might be at a cultural tipping point where people are sort of saying well actually I, I don't want to go back to the office I do want to work from home and I think this this is going to be a really big interesting um, situation to watch as we move forward on, on how does this work in a place like I say with the Gulf where traditionally this just hasn't happened. Great, lovely. John would you like to come in there? I can come in here. So the the key difference between COVID-19 and for for example SARS is the duration of the the event. So everyday living both within the world of business and at home is about routines. So we generate these routines, our employers generate routines, uh, employees generate um, hidden routines to make sure that they can deliver within the world of work, but in a way in which their employers might not be aware. So there are known routines and there are unknown routines. If you have a crisis that lasts a week, you go back to your existing routines. If you've got a crisis that lasts six months or 18 months, the likelihood of your routines changing permanently is really extremely high. So what COVID-19 has done is it's changed the rules of the game. New rules come into play. Um, I would agree with Sarah about homeworking. So homeworking has been around for 10 or 15 years. There's been a very 
there's been a lot of early research on home working, all saying people become lonely, they like face-to-face -face interactions, they like the chance encounters by the um, coffee machine or the water cooler or the photocopier, all of that really matters. Face-to-face -face isn't going to be replaced by various forms of remote, remote or tele-mediated presence. But I think COVID-19 is that tipping point. It's mm. going to mean that this becomes normal. So you, it's not going to be 100% remote access and remote presence, but it might be 50%, it might be 60%, there may be a new blend. Now for, for London, New York, Dubai, this has a whole series of interesting implications. So one implication, so on your slide, we have that incredibly tall building in front of us, the tallest building on the planet, or it was last time I sat underneath it having dinner. Um, the, uh, do we need, will we need such large spaces in central locations? Because companies may want to go for smaller centralized offices and a, and a blend between home working and working on site when you're working within a centralized location. That does happen. The, the the multipliers will be altered in London, Birmingham, and Dubai. So what that means is the balance of local coffee shops, the balance of restaurants will change. Mm. So there'll be a, a spillover and an impact on local business provision because people will be located elsewhere for some of the week in in Dubai. Supply chains. Well, the problem with supply chains is optimization and a focus on cost control. So if your supply chain is heavily optimized with no um, flexibility within it and you don't have at least dual provision multiple sourcing, COVID-19 will have actually caused you some very interesting shocks. Uh, so what COVID-19 highlights is that supply chains need to be managed to balance cost versus profitability versus risk. Now what that means is that governments may insist on a rebalancing. So you may have government saying that PPE must be available and manufactured locally. We cannot have PPE, personal protection equipment, that's coming in uh, from a supply chain that is 6,000 miles long. But alternatively, people like me, who are really irritating, sophisticated consumers, I don't want to buy products that contribute dramatically to climate change. So if I'm buying clothing, I want to buy local clothing. It's going to be slightly more expensive, perhaps, but not always. But I know that I'm not generating 6,000 carbon miles by buying an item of clothing in which the uh, textiles might have been sourced in Eastern Europe. They might have been woven, they might have been spun in China, woven back in Turkey, dyed in Spain, and then assembled into, a, into an item of clothing in Bangladesh, and then eventually flown to a site somewhere uh, in Europe, and then uh, through a, a warehouse chain to me. Think about the, 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 the level of disruption you can have across that supply chain. Any one country needs to just have a minor epidemic, and you have a huge impact. And then think about the contributions to climate change, because remember, COVID-19 is nothing towards what's coming in terms of climate change, in terms of how climate change is going to switch your countries permanently, um, because those countries will, will become slightly um, less livable than a country like Dubai. So imagine in, uh, ensuring that the Dubai's annual temperature in the, the, the summer temperature occurs all the way through the year and increases by 10%. Think about what a Dubai lifestyle might be then. Scary, I would imagine, yeah. <laughs> now that we're coming into summer, we're beginning to experience it. 
So, John, do you think um, these issues could be addressed through um, training and upskilling the staff? Because you've mentioned a bit of a change of mindset and a shift of skill sets as well. So I, th I think there are, well, the, the first time I joined a board, um, I was on a board with David Brooks. Now, David Brooks died, what, 12 years ago, or eight years ago, and he was the chief executive officer of Cadbury Sweeps. And David had a, an interesting attitude to board meetings in that he was usually very quiet and he would tilt, tilt his chair back. Now I'd be thinking as parent, do I say, no, stop tilting your chair. Come on, you're going to break the legs. Uh, you wouldn't, wouldn't have said that to David, David, but he wouldn't have minded. But he would always come back at the, somewhere in the meeting with the one question you didn't want anybody to ask it would be the key question that would, to use that current expression, it would pivot the meeting. Now, what David taught me, the first thing he taught me in my first board meeting is that a company like Cadbury Sweeps has six months before bankruptcy. So we're six months towards, uh, in any one company, in any one individual, we're six months towards an interesting crisis. So we're all precarious. So the title of the business fights, it has precariousness within it. So each of us has lives precarious lives. So we're one step or two steps away from living on the street, from being homeless. Each company, one or two steps away from being um, from closure, from downsizing, to having to engage in rapid crisis-related interventions, which is what a company shouldn't do. So what we need as both individuals and companies to be more risk-aware. So you're thinking about you know, a week in the life of business is a very long time. Five years you don't think about, 10 years you don't, don't, you don't think about. But I think every single business, every single individual needs to be thinking about a, a time-based risk management strategy and making sure that you have the resources, facilities and people in place to cope with that. And that's a different way of thinking about business. Um, I know that as, as a board member, uh, being a board member exposes me to at least 54 risks in terms of personal liability. So I try not to think about that um, because otherwise I wouldn't be a board member. But being aware of those risks means you, you have to be very cautious of the future. But cautious doesn't mean you're not actually generating revenue and you're not actually being revenue minded. But you're balancing revenue with costs versus risks versus alternative outcomes. Right. Sarah, what's your view on um, addressing some of these issues with upskilling, upskilling of staff? Well, I, I'm going to, of course, give a typical consultant answer and say the answer is yes and the answer is no. <laughs> um, <laughs> from, from a very basic perspective, yes, again, this the COVID situation has brought risk planning to the forefront. I don't think it's as simple as to say it's about training or upskilling staff. I would say it, it, it's training and upskilling and awareness needed amongst business leaders full stop. And it has to start there. It really has to start at the very top. It has to start in the boardrooms. It has to start with, in a, in a wide number of firms locally, a changing culture that, as, as John says, isn't just about addressing the next head on issue, but is very much taking a longer view. And that, of course, is one of the key roles of the board, is to take the longer the longer view and, and plan mitigate around that and I you know from a it, it very much needs a sort of top-down approach but I, I um 
I also don't think it's training and upskilling of staff full stop. I think it's I think it's far broader than that. I think HR policies probably across the board will need to be reviewed in line with new ways of working. I think organisations will have to relook at the skills that they need internally. One of the things that John and I have previously discussed, for example, is how do you keep up a culture, for example, or innovation and keep new ideas coming when people are sitting at home and, and trying to manage a thousand things at the same, you know, at the sort of at the same time and not necessarily sitting together in an office focused environment, having a coffee and being able to bounce ideas around. And I do fear that innovation, for example, is one of the areas that really could suffer as we work more remotely from each other. And, and I think in organisations that are very innovation focused, frankly, every innovation should be, but they're not. I, I do think that's something that will need to be considered. I also think the sort of pastoral care employees, or I'd like to think that pastoral care for employees will maybe become more prevalent as well in terms of business culture, given that the, the sort of mental health, I think, you know, COVID, one of the great things COVID has done has brought mental health issues to the forefront. That was a conversation which was starting to happen locally, which has been, but it's long overdue. And I think in recognition that companies only get the best out of employees when they're happy, healthy, settled and focused will mean that companies will look at, again, what are their responsibilities towards that and how do they make sure that they're supporting their, their team members. So, yes, I think there will be some training. I think there will be some upskilling. I think companies will need to look at what they do, you know, and, and what value they bring to society going forward um, post-COVID. But I do think it is, I don't think it's all with just I don't think it's just a question of training I do think it's a question of boardroom culture um, looking at looking far far further into, into the future risk planning for example and again HR I think will be a very very important part of the solutions going forward yes wish we had a, a crystal ball to be able to foresee any of that yeah and um, both of you have actually sort of no, no. <laughs> say again and so don't don't we all have crystal balls? Yes. <laughs> We're just on a bit of a delay. Yeah, this is, the, this is the main challenge we have at the moment is that we're operating in 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 a, an environment of such uncertainty. And of course, what that means is that you have to look at every single scenario that's out there and you have to plan for every single scenario. And it's exhausting and it's exhausting for business leaders, but it needs to be done. And, and this uncertainty is something that, you know, it's ricocheting around at a corporate level and it's ricocheting around at a personal level too. And of course, all of that knits together into, into the jigsaw of multiple choices and, and multiple stresses. Yeah, good. Now, both of you have uh, mentioned about um, the impact on supply chains and working differently. Do you think that different sectors of industry will be considering other ways of working following this pandemic? John. Right, okay, so there's lots of things going on here. So <laughs> just to, to, to follow the flow of the argument is that I think there's something here about the way in which our attitude to living. So at the moment, I'm trying not to listen to British media uh, or any media because every time you listen to it, I have people complaining. Uh, and journalists either go out to find people who complain the whole time and you never get people who are, who are saying, well, 
there's a crisis going on, but a crisis is an opportunity to change and we should embrace change and we should actually go with the flow and try and do as well as we possibly can, rather than saying, well, we can't do what we've always done, so we can't do what we've always done and we're, we're unhappy. So there's an attitude of change about, there's an attitude of mind which needs to change, where we become a, a lot more open and receptive. Um, so Sarah's comment saying uh, there's so much uncertainty. Well, the life and the world has always been uncertain. So live with it. Don't complain about it. See uncertainty as a moment for companies to, to enhance the certainty for their customers and their clients. Companies that can enhance that certainty suddenly find themselves with vast quantities of revenue. So think about how much money Zoom is making at the moment. Think about how much money Skype for business is making, making at, the, at the moment. So crisis, don't see it as a crisis, see it as a business opportunity. As an individual, see it as an opportunity to change. Now, for supply chains, we've been following 91 American firms since 2017. And we've been initially focusing on something to do with Donald Trump and China and trade wars. And we've been following the response of, the, of, of those companies to those, um, to, that, to those trade negotiations and conflict. And of course, what those companies have been doing is pulling, pulling um, um, sourcing and production facilities out of China. 21% of those firms have brought production back to the United States. So they're not gone from, a, gone from one uh, low cost location to another low, low cost location. Other firms have replaced China with Vietnam or Thailand. So we're seeing uh, relatively rapid adjustments to supply chains because of tariff barriers being imposed. We then looked at the same set of 91 companies, but over the period from February this year to the 20th of April, very, very precise time period. What were those companies doing? Well, some of them were doing not much because the supply chains were so disrupted and they had optimized the supply chains to such an extent that any micro disruption would mean they could not produce anything. So we had very large companies going to China early on with COVID-19 and getting employees to bring back parts and suitcases. So how about that for a risk management strategy? Anybody fancy a trip to China? And what you need to do is pick up a, a, a case of parts and bring it back on the flight. Um, that doesn't sound particularly well-managed business. Now other firms, um, what, what some of those 91 are saying, we are going to rebalance the relationship between overseas provision and provision on the, in the United States. Um, and that means that we're not saying we're not going to be an international business, we're going to have international elements, but we're going to have a greater uh, capacity within the United States. So if there is international disruption, we can still manage to provide for our core markets, which, which is the United States. And what they're then able to do is replace low-cost labor with mechanization, robots, robotics, artificial intelligence, etc. But all of that was already happening. So, so bringing production back, replacing people with machines, that was already beginning to happen. It might intensify, but it might intensify because of two pressures. One is pressure within the original equipment manufacturers to try and minimize some risks within their production systems. So new balance between local and international. The second pressure is coming from government. So government putting in place or re, re, uh, uh, putting in place or reigniting what the, the, the defense acts that, that America has, has, has put in that were in place, but they've now activated again. Those defense acts for health security and national security may flow past the COVID-19 period. 
which means governments may be encouraging and forcing firms to ensure local security of supply for certain components and certain products. And I can't see why that isn't going, isn't going to happen. Now there is a third issue. So I've got a paper which I'm desperate to write and I will write it next month, but I really want next month to be now. I haven't got time to write it now, but next month is, is I will spend a week writing it. I have another database of um, 65 firms. Now these are firms engaging in slow fashion. So not fast fashion, slow fashion. Each of these firms balances profit maximization with maximum benefits to employees and minimizing environmental impacts. Um, of those, of those 65, we can divide them into three types. One, they're all American. One of them produces everything outside North America, but using not a greenwashing approach, but a, a real washing approach, i.e. Uh, minimize um, climate impacts, maximize employment benefits, no labor exploitation. Another group are hybrid. So American production and non-American production. And the other group, only American production. And all of them have similar levels of profitability. All of them are utilizing values in different ways because what they're saying to their consumers, you can buy cheaply made foreign clothing or else you can buy our clothing. Now our clothing comes with a whole series of additional values. And those additional values are, it's environmentally friendly, it's labor friendly, um, it's uh, American employee friendly. Um, it's also slow fashion, but fast. Now, that's interesting. How can you have slow fashion that is also fast fashion? So most of these companies do short fashion runs. So rather than producing a million items of a, a skirt or a dress, they'll produce 200. And by producing 200, they minimize waste, but it means the next time they produce another dress, it's got a different style, it's a different fashion. So minimizing waste, maximizing alternative values. So in terms of clothing, expect change. Automotive, well, think about climate change and environmental vehicle and, and the move towards in, environmental as against oil as your primary, as your primary power train within, you, within your car. That's happening anyway. Um, so that's just going to continue to happen. For, I, I shouldn't say this talking to anybody in Dubai, but I'm hoping I might never need to fly again. Now, wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> never, ever having to fly again. This is going to be the first year in which I think I have never flown since 1988. In some years, I'll do 30 flights. Now, imagine never having to go to an airport, never having to go through security, never having to be in that cabin, never having to say to an air steward, no, I don't want any of your food. It's awful. Just let me sleep. Imagine never having to do any of that and just deal with anything from overseas remotely. That might happen. And of course, by doing that, I'm going to be really climate friendly. Great. So coming on to Sarah there, do you think these new working practices in organisations will be more sustainable post-COVID-19 on the basis of what John said? Well, I mean, this is the fascinating thing. And there's two things that I'm particularly interested in, in following as, as a result of the situation. And the first one is whether stakeholders, organisational stakeholders expectations change as a result. Um, there was an interesting paper published by BlackRock which showed um, the latest study really to show a clear correlation between investments in what we call ESG, so environmental, social and governance elements, um, having greater return on investment. And that this paper showed, it's just the latest one to do it, that firms that take their ESG more seriously 
are the ones that do better financially. Oops. Can you still hear? Oops, sorry, I lost you. Yes, yes. And so, so for me, there's a lot of chat, for example, I see in the UK media at the moment about whether people will be buying differently. So to go to John's point, for example, fashion brands, people be using this, this situation and their understanding of, of how it links into a bigger picture for society worldwide, will people be using that to ask different questions about the products they buy? Now, we here, here sitting in, in the UAE, sitting in the, the Arabian Gulf, I've worked a lot on this issue. And the answer is that, yes, we are at a tipping point in some areas of consumers starting to ask the questions, which, to be honest, they were probably asking in Europe 10 or 15 years ago when I was working on similar topics then. Part of, part of the issue here, we don't have so much environmental consciousness or the questions that we ask about sustainability products purely because we're such a diverse population. Again, it comes back to 170 plus nationalities here, everybody's in different parts of their learning, etc. And, and price still to date in terms of consumer goods does tend to dominate if you're looking at a mass, uh, sort of a mass perspective. So I'm not sure that consumers here will be asking the same questions that they might be in Europe, for example, sadly, I wish that they were. Um, I think the other thing for me that's very important that's going to be general is is whether business leaders start to look at investing more in internal communication. So how do they communicate internally with employees or maybe for broader uh, shareholders and things like that? Because I do think that expectations will have changed amongst people who work for firms. I think that they might be looking to their own business leaders, their own sort of organizational leaders to help them through such times of, of obvious volatility. John's absolutely right. I mean, the world is volatile. We, we, you can cross the street and something untold can happen. But this is very much put it into our, into our faces and we're all feeling it. And I think that, I do think that's going to be an interesting thing to, to watch as well. On the subject of flights, yeah, I'm fascinated by this. So I started my career advising airlines and I still do today, 25 years on. And Definitely what the concept of flight shame, which has been emerging in Europe, which is climate change link, of course, isn't something that is prevalent here yet. But at the same time, what, what this current situation has shown is that you actually don't need to get on a plane and fly five hours, eight hours to attend a meeting and then come back. You think of the cost to the organization, you think of the, the lost productivity while that person's traveling, with jet lag when they come back, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we're looking at technology now, whether it's Zoom, Microsoft Teams, et cetera, that is showing us actually what, what we can do, what we can achieve without stepping on a plane. And I do, I do wonder whether the days of business class travel by business people are, are somewhat limited now. I think it's, um, it's, I think again, very different perspective. If you're sitting in the UK, I've got friends in the UK, for example, who are talking about all the holidays that they're planning to take for the next year or two will be in the UK. So they'll get in their car or they'll take a bus or they'll take the train around the UK. Again, here and with the population where there's 80% of us that are from overseas, we tend to want to see our families. You know, we, we tend to want to go home and I, and I don't think that is going to change. But what will make people, I think, tw twice is what the cost will be when the airlines eventually fly again. And I think it will be more cost that will change behavior potentially, rather than um, just not wanting to, to get on a plane. Although I do think, I do think that, will be, that will be prevalent too. But um, 
I think, you know, again, if we're looking at socially distanced planes where you're essentially paying for a seat and a half or, or two seats, that's just going to put it out of the bounds of a lot of people who live here. And so they, they will want to get on the plane, but they won't actually be able to. And I think, I think the airline industry is in for a very, very tough ride, sadly. Mm. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing on the news as well, unfortunately. Okay, so just before we wrap up and go over to our lovely audience, um, what do you think about the wider issue of sustainability? Um, we've, we've touched on that already, but what are the main learnings from this pandemic for businesses as a whole, do you think, John? Well, I think the, the main learning is it's, it is, as the word I've already used, I think, this afternoon, it's a wake-up call. So think about what you're, how you're, you are currently, I, I, I see when I sit on a board, I have, I imagine what the business is going to be like in two or three years time. And I think about different futures and what futures, what are the futures that are really the ones you need to avoid and what are the futures you want to try and, and shape the business towards. So I think there's, there's something here about the way in which you imagine both your, your individual career. So I'm, I've got a, I've got a, my own, own personal career strategy is I compete against myself, which is not a very good thing to do. So every month I want to do better than I did last month. So it means my productivity goes up the whole time because I'm not benchmarking myself against anybody else. My, I am my own benchmark. I'm only as good as my last paper. So my continual worry is if there's no new paper, I'm in a major problem. So because I'm always continually worried about the next paper, I'm always generating many papers. Um, so businesses should have a similar sort of anxiety. But the anxiety is about how do we produce the best outcome for the business? Now, my definition of a business is interesting. So my, so my definition of a business is a business is a continual process of becoming. It never becomes. Because if it does become, it means it's dead, it's died. So it's always in a continual process of change and transition, going from one thing to another. Now, within that definition of a business, a business is a group of people who come together to control a set of assets for a short period of time. Now, as the people change, the, what they do with the assets also changes. So as an individual employee, think about future-proofing your career. How do you future-proof your career? Well, it depends on which career you're in. But part of that is about maintaining your skill set, making sure your skills are up to date, making sure they're current. Part of it is about maintaining and projecting and, and, and creating a, a reputation within your sector and the right reputation rather than the wrong rep, 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 reputation. So each employee is effectively a, a public relations person, but it's a public relations activity based on a solid set of foundations about provable performance, evidence-based performance. At the board level and at the company level, um, if I advise companies, I tell them the year in which they fail to innovate at least three times is the year in which they begin to die. So every single firm, whether you're vastly large or very small, at least minimum three innovations, product or process or some com combination, make sure that you have a continual um, ambition to do things better, to do things differently, to identify new products, to identify new services. Now, I'm not arguing for change for change's sake, but I'm arguing for appropriate levels of innovation so that what you are providing, people want to buy. Now, I'm conscious within the world of universities and business schools, there's one thing we don't say too much about. There are two words we don't use too much. One is product. So what product, be it a physical good or a service, are you providing and what values and use does that product provide to your consumer? 
That's the primary challenge for a business. Get that wrong, you're out of business. Get that right, you can retire in three years' time. Now, the second word we don't use is profit. So profit is one of those dirty words, but there are multiple ways of achieving profit. There are, there are ways in which you can uh, maximize profit, but at the same time, you maximize all sorts of negative outcomes from that profit. So you can have a really environmentally dirty business model. Or you can maximize profit, as Sarah has highlighted, uh, through blending risk versus profit with, with environmental awareness. And the companies that do that have a better ability to develop a new dialogue with consumers and a better ability to develop a different narrative around their products and services. So focus on your products, focus on your services, focus on the values you provide for consumers, and at the same time, think about balancing risk versus profit uh, versus cost. Lovely, thank you, John. Over to you, Sarah. Well, I, th I think the, the question was about whether COVID will, will affect um, how businesses view sustainability. And I think it's very important to define what sustainability is because too often when I talk to, to, to clients or, or even friends, sustainability is kind of seen as, as environmental nice-to-haves. Mm -hmm. And actually sustainability is about business continuity. Mm -hmm. Sustainability is essentially is about making sure that businesses have the wherewithal to, to survive what might be thrown at them. And I think if, if we look at it through that prism it isn't just about the environment the environment obviously is a very important part but it's also it, it's just a very fundamental business concept about survival the i think what, what's interesting from a local perspective is this is the first year that um a number of the stock exchanges uh, have mandated sustainability reporting and so in and it's it's mandated now in Abu Dhabi and it's highly recommended in Dubai. So we already have this change happening. This predates COVID. And this is an this is a an explicit acknowledgement effectively of what shareholders and, and broad organizational stakeholders are now looking for, the types of questions that they're asking. It's no longer just a, not it's not just about financial returns anymore. It's about the you know the bigger picture, whether it's the balanced scorecard, you know, what does an organization contribute to society, etc. And I do think that COVID will have accelerated some of these questions, particularly of shareholders. You know, if you're investing in a company, you want to make sure that that company is sustainable. And, and I mean that in the literal sense that it's going to survive. It doesn't, you know, your shares don't get wiped out. Your investment doesn't go sort of down the drain. So I think different questions will be asked. And I think that's a very positive thing. I also know that, um, again, locally listed firms are being um, recommended to report back on, on how that they have specifically addressed the, the COVID situation. Again, I think that's a really good thing because it brings a little bit more transparency to how businesses operate, but it also makes the... The people sitting around, the, the men and women sitting around the board table, it makes them focus on those questions. And again, looking at that longer term as well. As John said, it's a, it's a board director's responsibility to be looking at the survival of a company. But that, that assumes that you've got active board members who are asking challenging questions. And in this part of the world, as in other parts of the world, that may or may not be the case. So I, th I think, you know, I think in summary, I think COVID while it's been absolutely soul destroying for individuals many many you know millions of individuals around the world while it's been terrifying for for business leaders while so many people millions and millions and millions uh, you know facing very hard times as a result of this there are positive 
outcomes of it, which I do believe will benefit society in the long term. And I do believe sustainability is one of them. And I think my, my final point on that would be, I was watching something on the BBC last night talking about air quality, which is, which is another topic I've been involved with in, in this part of the world. And of course, we've all seen those sort of um, graphic representations of, of air quality across the world and how it's improved while, while there were great shutdowns. And then of course, how things are, you know, how air quality is now deteriorating in various parts of the world, for example, China as, as business gets back to normal. And I do think that COVID has pr presented us with this unique situation that none of us ever thought would happen, frankly, to be able to say what happens to our environment when when humanity kind of shuts down a bit you know and i do think that there that it was it's almost like a big experiment that nobody ever wanted but the data from it is just incredibly invaluable and i'd like to think that the learnings from that too will be taken forward by governments in their policy making by businesses in their sort of sustainability planning when they look at their individual contribution to the health of our planet going forward Great, thank you both. Well, thank you both for your participation in today's Business Bites webinar and providing some really valuable insights for us into the current issues faced by many industry sectors. So thank you. Um, so let's hand over to our audience now for some questions. Um, so let's just have a look at, we've got 23 questions. Bear with me. I think one of the new, the major new skills uh, <laughs> today is about me getting to grips with Zoom, and this all worked very well recently. Okay, let me just scroll down. So, first one is there recent research on productivity in relation to homeworking? And in my own case, I'm working harder with fewer breaks and more demands on my time. That's how it feels, anyway. Either of you want to answer that one? Yeah, so, the, so the answer to that is there is use, there is recent research. Uh, there have been a series of COVID nineteen surveys of this done from some of the consultancy firms and what they're highlighting that you're absolutely correct people are working harder um, i have thought about that in terms of my own working habits so my standard sunday morning uh, get up at six o'clock work on the paper until 9 30 and then have breakfast now that's an unusual um, way of working for me it's a COVID 19 way of working so why am i doing that and I think there's something here about we're slightly unsettled. So we're trying to demonstrate that we're proving that we are still valuable for our employer and we're working well and we are engaged. So I think there's a relationship between productivity and the rules changing at home. So we're wanting to make sure that we, our employers are seeing that we are working well. Now for the employer, that's a problem because what you don't want is people overworking at home and having an inappropriate work-life balance. So they're unable to distance themselves from work. Distancing from work is important because it means that you can reflect back and change and think about innovation and think about doing things differently. So the answer is your question, yes, productivity in recent research, COVID-19 homeworking is an impact. Um, I think there's a, there's a management issue there in making sure people are not overworking. Lovely. Yes, and I think the key word, the key word is also productivity. You know, sitting at sitting at your desk and trying to manage children, or in my case, a ridiculously large menagerie of animals who keep jumping on my desk, etc. It's it's COVID for me personally has taught me the importance of routine 
And of course, it was something I took for granted before. You know, I sort of went to the office and I had my own routine there, but I've had to establish new routines. And I'm not somebody who's very root. I don't like routine as a concept. You know, I'm a creative person and it kind of freaks me out at the thought of having this sort of very military schedule. But it's actually what's worked for me. And what I've also learned is that productivity isn't sitting at your desk for hours on end. Productivity really comes in bursts. And there's a great technique, if anybody's struggling with it, called the Pomodoro technique, which is Italian for tomato, which essentially kind of gets you to set a kitchen timer and sit at your desk for, you know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes and stretch your it gradually to help you focus and so if anybody's really struggling with productivity I would have a look at that but also you know look at look at what you can do to affect the environment around you whether it's even just closing the door as I have done to speak to you all so um you know shutting the door and, and not possible obviously if you've got young kids necessarily but everybody has to find their own way with this but productivity is the key word here you can be more productive sometimes in three hours three really focused hours than you can be in 15 hours at your desk let me just add to that there is that relationship between productivity and creativity so if you're an employer or an employee and you're in a business environment where productivity is defined by the relationship between cost versus output that doesn't necessarily encourage creativity because in creativity there may be no no direct relationship between the cost of the creative process and the output of the creative creative process so sarah's right if you're stuck to your laptop uh, and your three screens or four screens however many screens you might happen to be that may not be the most creative way of working i know with with me if i've got a problem what tends to happen is i go for a walk around the garden or go for a walk around the block or i have i'm within 10 minutes of walking on hills i can just decide to go for a five minute walk and after five minutes suddenly the, there's a there's a the solution to the problem emerges in my head doesn't emerge sitting at my desk or at my laptop, but it usually emerges at walking. Thank you. Yeah, there's a few questions around, around that issue, um, particularly about homeworking when you're home, homeworking with kids. Um, one of them is looking here, where are we? Is it an opportunity for businesses to employ more people in a remote capacity, thus avoiding obligations such as health insurance and accommodation? This could have a negative impact on pastoral care and employee welfare. What do you think of that one? Right, okay, well, so we need, we, we need more labor <laughs> exploitation. So we could advertise uh, an interesting company that this is the company to work for because we exploit you, uh, so come and be creative here uh, and, and enjoy an interesting exploitation. I think the, the issue here is, is the first thing we need to remember, the, the millennial generation are very different to people like me and perhaps Sarah. They think differently, they're not necessarily driven by monetary return the whole time, they're, they're, they're driven by issues to do with lifestyle. So if you are an employer and you're wanting to exploit home workers in the way in which they were exploited in the 18th century, remember 18th century, the early, early years of the Industrial Revolution was based about home working where someone would, would come up, would arrive at your cottage on a horseback and provide you with a, a set of resources and then come and revisit you in a week's time. Uh, and pick up completed you know, woven textiles, whatever, whatever. That's where industrialization started. Um, if you're going to engage in that form of exploitation, you will eventually find difficulties in attracting appropriate levels of worker engagement. And you're, what you're then doing is you've, you've got a business that's, that's heading towards an approach based on cost control. Competing on cost is not sensible because someone else can outcompete you on cost. What you need to make sure yep. is your products have alternative values within them. So as soon as you're, you're looking at a business that competes on cost, 
for me as, as a potential future employee, I know I don't want to be there because the long-term future of that business is going to be one which is incredibly troubled as every moment, every month, you're stripping out costs to try and maintain your competition on price. So price-based competition is not where you need to be at within the labor market or within the wider marketplace. Yeah, I think just, just to jump in here with my view, I've got a, um, while I absolutely agree in theory with John, I don't think it quite is working that way in this part of the world. I think, I think what's really important to, to highlight is the difference between employing people who work remotely and employing freelancers. All right. Um, so freelancing in terms of the gig economy was something that was already happening pre-COVID. It was something that started to take off in this part of the world a few years ago with the introduction of licenses for freelancers. There are some markets such as the UAE who are ahead of other markets in the region on that. So definitely in terms of the freelance gig economy, that was starting to happen. And do I think it's a way for companies to avoid taking on permanent staff and therefore obligations that they might have legally here? Yes, in part, but I think it's also a strategy. You know, I think there are things where freelance, freelancing works very well, for example, in the creative industries, but it wouldn't work so well, for example, in manufacturing, where you've got to learn systems or operate machinery or things like that. So I think it's going to be very different from business to business. But I think there's also an important thing to note is that, you know, there are people out there who prefer to be freelance, you know, who actively make choices. To, to pursue freelance careers and we're starting to see that in this part of the world too and it's not looked at through the prism of you know I want to go freelance and, and sort of and because companies want to avoid you know avoid paying the, the insurance and what have you that's all sort of built into the business model of freelancing it very much freelancing is yeah. predominantly still a lifestyle choice um, it's also a backup plan for people for example if they can't find permanent work but I would like to think it won't be abused and, and certainly in this part of the world I think the government here in the UAE was very quick to come out with emergency legislation to protect workers to impact in, in protect employees impacted with COVID and again I salute I salute them on that so while we might not have for example the same furloughing schemes that you have in the UK or salary protection in in the ways that it's been done elsewhere in the world the government was very quick to, to pass this emergency legislation and um, I do think it's something that will be followed as a concept very closely by policymakers. Great, thank you, Sarah. And one final question, just to, um, we're running out of time here, is um, one of our audience has a question for Professor Bryson. What do you think of ownership change, for example, M&A activities after this epidemic, particularly in Asia? Well, the, the, the key thing, it depends on the sector, it depends on the company, and also it depends what you're doing with that particular facility. So if you're engaging in a merger and acquisition in Asia and you're an American firm, are you doing that to plug that resource into a supply chain process? So you're, you're, you're taking components and products from Asia and you're selling them predominantly into North America. If that's the, the primary purpose of that acquisition, you're probably dealing with something which is high risk given COVID-19. If the primary purpose of that acquisition is about local provision, so you're an American firm picking up some, an Asian asset to provide resource and assets and components and commodities and services locally within Asia. That's very different. Or else it's somewhere in between. So it's a hybrid. So in some cases, some of that capacity in Asia is linked into other markets. Some of that capacity is linked into local markets. So it's, this is about variegation within your business model and variegation within your operational systems 
So rather than having something which is purely about international activity or purely about local activity, it can be doing both. I think, can I, can I just jump in there with a, with a yeah, consultant view on it too, is that um, as, as a firm, we're sort of rooted in financial communication. So it's communicating, helping firms to communicate around IPOs, for example, um, or, or M&A activity. And certainly as a firm, what, what we are seeing, um, what we're preparing for, is that probably a, a real drop which, which was already happening, but a real drop in IPO activity. IPOs tend to happen when there's buoyant, confident markets and people want to invest. So we think IPOs um, are going to be fewer and far between. M&A will be an interesting one, a bit difficult to predict at the moment, but definitely you know, you'll either see companies maybe joining up, but maybe companies from different industries as well, joining up, realising that, that value is better created. Um, through joining up in, in, in the new environment that we'll face post-COVID. But the, the thing that we're really shoring up on at the moment is our restructuring communications practice, because we do believe that there's a lot of companies out there, sadly, who are going to need, need top-notch advice in restructuring and how they communicate their restructuring to their stakeholders. And that's something that we're certainly very focused on as a firm in helping our clients do at the moment. Mm. Interesting point there. Um, very much involved in education here, obviously, in the UAE. And we know many of the schools here are collaborating, not just with the EdTech, but also with um, professional development for their teachers across schools. So, yeah, interesting concept. Okay, then. So let's wrap up. Um, thank you everybody for watching and participating and I do um, apologize for the glitches in the IT here, totally down to me, um, I admit, hands up. Um, so thank you again for watching and well, we do hope that you'll join us next time for future Business Bites Insights. As I say, we are um, covering lots of different industry sectors and looking at the insights into the challenges um, that COVID brings for those. So please log on to the University of Birmingham Dubai's website and look under the tab for events. Um, all of the um, dates and topics are listed there. Um, alternatively, if you want to connect with me, and I really would welcome some feedback today, um, there's my email, my telephone number, and also my LinkedIn um, address there. So thank you again. And unfortunately, we didn't actually um, answer everybody's question, but one of them there was, where is the um, recording of the webinar? And I hope to edit it fairly soon, get it off to you, and have it available as a resource for yourselves, both business and students, on our um, Birmingham Dubai web, web, um, web page, if you like, under events. So thank you again, and I do apologize, and thank you very much again to both of our speakers, um, Professor John Bryson, and also Sarah Bartlett, and I really apologize, Sarah, about your camera, because we haven't been able to see your lovely face all the way through the webinar today. <laughs> thank you, and lovely, lovely to join you all. I hope it was some value. Thank you again. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you, bye. Thank you.